podcasting world. Welcome back to another episode of the Core Console RX podcast. My name is Mike Corvino, uh, and with me today, instead of Cole Swanson, he's actually still in the process of moving and spending time with family. I have uh, my new buddy, uh, Martin Brenneman. Martin, what's up, man? Uh, not too much. Doing pretty good. So uh, you are up in pharmacy school up in Ohio, Northern, right? Yes. So what year? Yep. Sorry, go ahead. Um, well, you're going to say what year am I? And I'm actually a P6. A P6. Um, and I know that's, I know that's probably a little bit of a weird uh, terminology for a lot of people out there, but Ohio Northern has a, a really different um, setup in that it's a zero six program. So uh, you start right out of high school, you apply, and you're in for the full time. You skip a bachelor's degree and just get your farm D. So very it's, cool. Yeah, I think it's been a I think pros and cons to it, but I think for me, it's worked out really for the best. So, yeah. Yeah, that's awesome, man. Um, so, so have you kind of, I guess, from the start then known you were going the pharmacy school route? Because I think a lot of people, when they're in undergrad, are kind of debating, you know, med, farm, dental, you know, all that. So you are set in stone right off the, right from the gate. Yeah. So once we're accepted, I mean, there's a point at which you could probably switch and get a, like biochem or uh, a chem degree. Um, by like in your second or third year, you could still switch and graduate on time. But um, after that point, it'd be extra schooling to make sure that like to be able to get a bachelor's degree rather than the PharmD. Yeah. So how did you decide on pharmacy school? Uh, what kind of led you to you have, you know, family members that are pharmacists or how did, how did you fall into pharmacy? Uh, actually, no, I'm first generation college student. Um, so no influences there. I really liked chemistry in high school and I did a, a career course that said these are some of the things you that would kind of match what your interests are and what your aptitude is and essentially uh, it came down that I really wanted to be able to help people and give back to the community around me and I had also had a lot of exposure to Ohio Northern because of uh, the music groups that I was in they did a lot of their summer camps for show choir and band that kind of stuff over at Ohio Northern mm -hmm. um, so it just kind of, I knew the campus. I, I knew it was close to home. It's only about 30 minutes from where I live. It's right in the middle of the cornfields. Um, but uh, yeah, you guys getting, kind of all the right pieces. Are you guys getting snow already? Yeah, it's it's pretty pretty covered outside right now. I, I guess I said already. It's already December. I don't know what I'm talking about, but yeah. So we were. I'm actually. Uh, I was in shorts uh, a little bit ago. So it's. Uh, oh man. <laughs> yeah, we we don't. It's good because if we have snow around here in South Carolina, like we have zero clue how to drive in snow. And so we all just crash immediately and it's, it's a nightmare. Yeah. Uh, I just watched a news story and some guy was like bragging like, yeah, no, my Jeep can handle this. It's no problem. I was like, okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah we'll see. <laughs> we'll see. We'll so, see. I love the confidence. The the I love the yeah. confidence. <laughs> So, um, you, we kind of, uh, started talking over Instagram, um, and you had brought up, uh, the new, um, community acquired pneumonia guidelines. I wanted to make sure we talked about that, um, which is great yeah. because we haven't done that episode and it's something that's important mm -hmm. and we haven't had new guidelines in what, 12 years for community acquired yeah, pneumonia. So, yeah. um, what kind of like brought you to, are you interested in infectious disease? Is that the route you're going to go or what's your, kind of your game plan after school? Yeah, so um, that's actually what I really want to do. I'd like to do uh, PGY2 and infectious disease. 
um, obviously get a PGY-1 first and then go on to, from there. But I'm currently in the residency search. I've got December off from uh, rotation blocks. So using that time to uh, finish up my applications and um, do stuff like this, the podcast, um, keeping up to date on the guidelines and different things. So, yeah. Very cool. Um, do you have any schools in mind or uh, hospitals or whatever that you want to go for for residency? Do you, are you going to try to stay in the Ohio area? You're going to go travel a little bit. Uh, there's not really much in way of PGY twos for ID in Ohio. There's three and only one that I was really interested in. So I'm looking at like the one state around Ohio. So Michigan, uh, Kentucky, West Virginia are kind of the places that I've been looking at for programs. Very cool. Did you go to mid-year? Uh, I was not able to go to mid-year. No, gotcha. I've gone to a lot of the, um, state showcases Very for, cool. for like one day. Yeah. I don't know what I was thinking this year because like I probably could have gotten off and work and gone to mid-year and I started getting I didn't even think about it and I started getting some people asking me from like Instagram and things if I was going to be there and then some of my mm -hmm. buddies were doing that are involved with like residency programs now we're talking about meeting students out there and I was like what that and it's in Vegas I'm like what what a gross miscalculation on my part like I, I was like yeah. what an idiot of all the years to miss I was like oh, that's that was dumb yeah, it's just a couple of years ago that it was in Vegas. Yeah. Before though, I think it was like four or five or something. <laughs> yeah. So it'll probably be back there. Yeah, I think it's in New Orleans next year, so I might definitely try to check that one out. Yeah, that sounds that'd like be, a fun time. Yeah, that'd be good. It's always it's much more fun when you've already graduated and you don't need a residency because then you can have a little yeah. bit more fun instead of having to keep the professionalism uh, look up the whole time. <laughs> yeah, I. Not that I'm advising. This year probably struggled with that. Yeah. Yeah. Or you can be a little bit more relaxed and. In, in just everything. Yeah, for sure. So um, how's the process been so far, kind of like getting ready to, you know, f go through the residency interviews and all that? Has it been kind of a huge pain or has it been easier than you thought? What's your take on it? It's been a lot of digging through sites to find, find information about them and comparing the different sites. Because yeah. I actually started, I'm looking at seven programs now, and I started with about 12 total around um, the Ohio area that I described a second ago. Um, and so, I mean, I could have applied to more, but I don't know. I just didn't, there are things that I, after talking to the programs kind of ruled them out in my book, just because of how I kind of felt the feeling that I got from talking with them. So I think that's been fairly easy. It's been a little bit time consuming, but, um, overall it's not been too bad. Um, the actual like writing letters of intent and filling out the forecast stuff, it's been a little bit harder than I thought it would be. So, no. yeah, it's a lot of, a lot of that stuff. I'm in the process of writing a few letters of recommendation right now. So I'm like the other end and I'm like, man, yeah. I thought I was done filling out applications and such, but nope. <laughs> Trying to help some people yeah. out now. So it's, it never ends. Yeah, for sure. So, um, you know, you, we were chatting a little bit yesterday and, and you had brought up, you know, some of the changes in the dosing and things like that. And it sounded like you had really kind of, dived into these guidelines and done, done your research on them, um, in, in advance, what kind of, how did you land on community acquired pneumonia? Is it just something you were working on with one of your professors or preceptors or how did that kind of come about? Uh, just because of how recently they came out. Um, uh, it was actually October 1st. So it was like the day before my birthday. And I was like, I'm the kind of nerd. I was like, man, an early 
birthday present. <laughs> so on my birthday, I spent time like sitting through and like looking through the guidelines. So <laughs> that's, that's that kind of a, <laughs> it, it, to be totally honest, I hear you. I'm a hundred percent the same way. I spend most of my free time when I'm down uh, reading guidelines and doing stuff. I just don't like to admit it out loud, but, and of course I just told yeah. a whole bunch of people on the podcast, but, <laughs> yeah. but, uh, it's all good. Um, nerds, uh, make the world go around. So, um, mm-hmm. let's dive into these things, man. Let's, uh, cause, cause I think I'm sure some people have seen them, but I think we've definitely gotten a lot of questions from them. So I think a lot of people haven't had the time to kind of really go deep with the guy on. So we'll, we'll kind of pick these yeah. things apart and, um, where do, where do you want to start? So I guess just a brief overview of what the past guidelines kind of were and what they included. Um, and then kind of, um, talking about, they set it up in a very different way and we can kind of when we get to that point to talk a little bit about how they changed that. So the last time the guidelines were uh, published was in 2007. So it's been about 12 years since the we've had new guidelines and with infectious disease, a lot of things change in terms of epidemiology and they've started really using the, um, the 23 valent um, pneumococcal vaccine. So they feel like that that has changed the, the epidemiology uh, quite a bit in terms of what is what the causative pathogens are. Mm-hmm. I think that there's probably a shift more towards now viral pathogens causing pneumonia, or at least the initial case, as opposed to as much that it was the uh, strep pneumonia in the past. It's still a pretty significant pathogen, but there's predicting that it's essentially a shifting. And um, this is a good kind of kind of bring this up too. This is random, but um, did you see the new um, ACIP guidelines for the? Pneumonia vex at Prevnar 13, um, where they've shifted from everyone 65 and over gets it to now it's more clinician specific because the this miraculous drug that they thought they had or vaccine that they thought they had actually didn't really drop the rates all that much. It's probably, like you said, more to the, the Pneumovax 23 that's doing a lot of the heavy lifting. Yeah. Um, I hadn't actually seen that specifically, but I mean, it makes a lot of sense. I think that essentially it just added. Um, different strains into the 23 that were kind of left out of the 13. So it would make more sense getting two doses of the, the 23 to kind of make it um, more potent in certain patient populations. Yeah. And, and so I'm going to go ahead and say this real quick is um, since we're talking about nerding out anyway, because I know someone's going to be like, what? and ex- start bringing this uh, conjugate versus polysaccharide vaccine thing up. So uh, I'll, I'll mention this too, just so I can you know cover all my bases. I don't want to get any angry emails afterwards. But um, one of the things to keep in mind, because that is one of the questions that a lot of people ask is, well, why? Because even now with immunocompromised patients, we do recommend the 13 um, conjugate vaccine first before the Pneumovax 23. And the reasoning behind that, so when you have a, a polysaccharide vaccine, you're, you have the polysaccharide like outer coat of, you know, the strep pneumo uh, bacteria. Mm-hmm. Um, however, when, um, you know, the, and I'm saying this for the listeners, I'm not trying to insult your intelligence by any means. Yeah. Um, so, but uh, when, when the, uh, you know, vaccine kind of um, is there instead of the actual strep pneumo, you're signaling like B lymphocytes to, you know, the antibodies that are present on the cell surface to um, bind to that outer coat and then engulfs the bacteria or what it thinks is the bacteria. Um, and in normal cases, if it was an actual strep pneumo, you'd be able to uh, break it down and, you know, attach it to uh, MHC2 um, complex and present it on the 
cell surface, so an antigen presenting cell. So you also have like dendritic cells that do this, um, monocytes, yeah. things like that. And so uh, the problem with the polysaccharide vaccine is there is no um, internal, you know, contents for it to actually present on cell surface. So you'll get a kind of a ramp up production of like memory B cells and um, activated B cells, which I uh, believe are called plasma cells, if I remember correctly. And, um, you know, so that's great, but we don't really get T cell activation, which is really our our big uh, you know, driving force. So um, the conjugate vaccine, even though it has less serotypes that it covers, um, they took the polysaccharide coat and they uh, conjugated it to diphtheria carrier proteins. And, you know, in that case, it, once the, if it's a B lymphocyte binds, you know, to it, breaks it down, um, you actually have something to present on the cell surface, um, which gets T cells activated. So in a way, the reason why with immunocompromised patients and, you know, patients that didn't, you know, have had a spleen removed and all kinds of different criteria, then, you know, those patients, even though it's not as many serotypes, you get the immune system kind of primed, so to speak, and mm-hmm. um, then allow the... 23 polysaccharide vaccine to kind of take over eight weeks later uh, and hopefully have a better response. However, that's how it works in theory, um, especially in the elderly population. We didn't really see that play out. Um, Mm -hmm. And one of the things I actually, I'm so glad that I talked about this in the podcast, like in 2017, because did you ever see the Capita trial that got Prevnar approved for 65 and over in the first place? I don't think so. So, I wasn't quite in therapeutics at that time. Oh, yeah, that's true. It was, yeah, 2015 was a minute ago, I guess. <laughs> so um, <laughs> the, uh, the the guidelines kind of shifted when this Capita trial came out, and they were reporting, I think it was, if I remember correctly, like 48% um, decrease in pneumonia and then like a 74%, something like that. My numbers are a little bit off, I'm sure, but 70, mm-hmm. 72 74% decrease in invasive pneumococcal disease. And, uh, mm-hmm. I mean, so looking at that, you're like, awesome. That's a no brainer, but that was the relative risk, risk reduction. They never even mentioned absolute risk. So you have to almost kind of calculate yourself. And when you do that and you calculate absolute risk reduction, look at number needed to treat for regular community acquired pneumonia. It was over a thousand patients you had to treat with Prevnar 13. This is a solid use of our tax dollars. And, uh, the, uh, and then for invasive pneumococcal disease, it was over the number needed to treat was over 2000. So, that's that's not great. So I'm not super surprised. I was I actually did a video back in like 2015. It was one of the first videos I ever did. It's freaking terrible. But um, it was one of the first ones I did, and uh, it was talking about how to calculate number needed to treat and why that's important for students who say like, "Why well, mm-hmm. I'm not a statistician? I don't give a crap." Um, and I yeah. used the Capita trial as an example. So I'm so pumped now that I can go back and be like, "Aha! I told you guys it sucked." <laughs> but um. <laughs> You know, whatever. I'll get off my soapbox about that. But I am glad the guidelines, uh, the vaccine guidelines changed. Um, and we got two mm-hmm. new vaccines coming out hopefully in another year or so anyway, the 15 and the 20, I think, something like that. But both conjugate vaccines, so it'd be a little bit better. Anyways, sorry. That was a total uh, rabbit trail, but I had to get that out. Yeah, no right. problem. What, no. What, what do you want to go from here? What do you want to start with? So I guess just to talk about the common pathogens. Yeah. Um, briefly so just so that they're in everyone's kind of mind so the the two most common are going to be uh, streptococcus pneumoniae and Haemophilus influenzae and after that you're kind of looking at uh, mycoplasma pneumoniae uh, staph aureus is a, a lesser pathogen but can cause some pretty serious infections when that is the the causative pathogen and then 
some of the species like Legionella and uh, Chlamydia pneumoniae and Meraxella. And with these, there's kind of two groups in that determines like what antibiotics we're going to be selecting to cover empirically. So there's the what we call the typical and then the atypical pathogens with this. So the the typical pathogens are be uh, your um, Streptococcus pneumoniae, Pomphilus influenzae, um, and staph. And then your the Mycoplasma legionella and Chlamydia pneumoniae are all going to be atypicals. They're going to it's not talking about like how common they are. It's talking about the onset of the disease. Exactly. So, and that, that's a good point too, because I think that we think of atypicals as being like very rare. And nowadays it's actually not that rare to see, you know, Legionella or Chlamydia pneumonia, something like that pop up. Mm-hmm. We had a bad case yeah. of one um, not too long ago, actually, where the, we got the susceptibility um, and uh, resistance susceptibility uh, report back. And it was mm-hmm. like resistant to literally every single thing we ran against it. And we were like, man, you're going to the hospital because we cannot take yeah. care of this. Yeah. And sometimes that's just the best best thing to do is to defer to, to someone else that mm-hmm. sees it more often. But yeah. And so with those atypical presentations, it's going to be kind of like generic cold, um, common cold type symptoms of um, generally just like feeling tired, malaise, and can be up to like 14 days for it to be like a full onset of the infection. Whereas the typical pathogens, you'll probably start experiencing those symptoms within anywhere from like three to five, maybe seven days, depending on the the specific bacteria that actually affects you. Um, But that's the biggest kind of differentiation there. Yeah, that's good. And um, I I think I heard you mention it, but the other thing that's interesting too is we oftentimes forget like um, viral uh, pathogens. And that's something we're Mm -hmm. starting to see a lot more is the combination of bacterial and viral at the same time. Or somebody has Mm -hmm. influenza, they get the flu, that lowers their immune system, and then they get strep pneumo of infection on top of it. Um, And so I think that's something that um, I feel like was definitely kind of stressed. Some, even some of the like the review articles, like uh, by Medscape and things like that, were um, yeah. really emphasizing. You know, if the person has a you know, recent outbreak or there's a high instance of uh, outbreak of flu, being treated like Tamiflu and the antibiotics to make sure you're covering both yeah. sides of the spectrum. Yeah, and that's something that they actually like kind of mentioned in these these guidelines when they're talking about the the etiology is that there's been an increased recognition, is how they phrased it, of the viral pathogen since the last guidelines because our um, like PCR testing has become so much um, better in terms of being able to actually detect when those pathogens are there. Mm-hmm. So specifically the viral pathogens. Good stuff. So, um, sorry, go ahead. Oh yeah. The looking at like what the previous um, kind of sensitivity and specificity of those were, it was significantly lower but um, the more recent ones have sensitivities anywhere from 66 to 99% and specificities from anywhere from 55 to 99%, uh, depending on the virus type. Um, and those are the rapid molecular assays compared to the um, RT-PCR. And that was actually from discussed in the IDSEA's influenza guidelines, which in a couple of times, they just sort of cite back to those influenza guidelines in here because they don't want to contradict the, the data that was in that previous guideline. Yeah, for sure. Um, anything else with uh, 
pathogens at all you want to make sure we talk about? Not that I can think of unless there's something you really no, need um, to hammer on. I mean, we can, as we go through it, I mean, we can mention things like, um, you know, when we're worried about MRSA or, you know, um, pseudomonas, things like that. Obviously, those are not going to be, those are more going to be common in like nosocomial pneumonias, things like that. Um, so we'll, yeah. you know, we'll mention some of those treatments as we go, but um, I don't want anybody thinking we're leaving our, our buddies, our, our more resistant buddies out. <laughs> And, yeah. um, yeah. and, and then it's, uh, like aspiration pneumonia, um, a lot of times too is, is multibacterial, um, where you'll get like this combination of like anaerobes and, um, common pathogens as well, um, that can be causing the infection. So a lot, a lot more goes into it than just, here's a Z pack uh, out the door, depending on what the cause yeah. was. Yeah. They actually address specifically, um, aspiration pneumonia later in one of the, the questions when we kind of get to how they set that up, but awesome. Cool. Uh, I guess moving forward, they kind of like break up the recommendations essentially into based on severity of the illness, um, location of treatment, and then the patient's health status, if they have comorbidities or not. And so they have something that it kind of reminds me of like the Duke's criteria, where if you have three of the minor, these minor criteria that they list, um, which is um, kind of similar to like the CURB-65, so respiratory rate greater than 30, um, decreased um, oxygen saturation, Multilobal, multilobal infiltrates, um, they have the confusion. So those are some of the like minor criteria. And then the major criteria essentially is if the patient's got septic shock with the need for vasopressors or if they have uh, respiratory failure requiring mechanical ventilation. And so if they meet three of those minor or one of the major, um, they're considered to be a severe infection. And so they have different recommendations based on that. Yeah, absolutely. So I was actually um, surprised, and, and this may this may just be how outdated I was when I was first thinking about this. But I was actually surprised when I was reading through these that because um, every time I was thinking of like prognostic criteria, I've always thought curb sixty five, um, and yeah. so that the fact that they actually recommend um, the pneumonia severity index over that um, kind of surprised me a little bit. Um, and I guess they've they've amped up the curb sixty five anyway, where they've added a few other uh, additional factors that makes it a little bit more effective or more. Mm -hmm. um, accurate, I guess. But, uh, yeah. yeah, that kind of threw me up for a, a quick second. Yeah. So that was actually something I discussed these guidelines with my ID professor at ONU, um, a couple weeks ago when I was spending some time there. Um, and we kind of talked about that, that like, because the PSI is so cumbersome mm -hmm. that, um, even 10, 15 years ago when cell phones weren't as good, it made the curb 65 so much better to, to use because it was five things you could really keep it straight in your head. It was just one point per item, whereas the PSI is kind of multiple points and some of them are negative risk factors. So like being female reduces your, your risk. Um, and some things are 30, 40 points as opposed to just 10. So it's a much more cumbersome thing, but now these days we're able to use like MD calc on our phone or something and just click down the list of what the, the risk factors are and do that just as fast as if we were comparing the, the curb 65 in our head. Mm -hmm. And actually in the last guidelines, they said that they, there wasn't enough evidence to um, distinguish between curb 65 and PSI as defining um, mortality risk and defining inpatient versus outpatient treatment. But the, with the new data that has come out, uh, there is, they are recommending more so the, the PSI so that is um, something that you may need to just look into yourself to determine whether or not that's 
the route that your institution or your um, practice site wants to go with. Um, they talk a lot about in the guidelines using like your local um, treatment guidelines and like how you guys define the, the treatment algorithm. And so that might be like a personal literature review that you need to do to determine which one you is going to be most effective for where you're practicing. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think that's important too, is, you know, guideline. I had a, one of my, I remember very vividly, I was, I was in the sticku for one of my rotations and I, the, the, you know, my precept at the time in, in critical care was not my, my thing. And so, um, mm-hmm. I remember, uh, my, my preceptor asked me a question and I gave him like the, the guideline and, you know, response. And he said, mm-hmm. well, why is that? And I was like, well, it's the guidelines. He's like, cool. Now, what does that mean? Like who, who are the guidelines <laughs> yeah. right? Do you agree with them? And I was like, oh shoot. Yeah. And it's kind of like my first like real, like real, like wake up call that, oh yeah, these are just guidelines. They're not supposed to be a one size fits all type of situation. And you still have to be patient specific with your treatment options. So that was mm-hmm. one of the first times I kind of like really that clicked in my head um, was when he looked at me like I was insane when I, when I told him my recommendation. So yeah, yeah, that stuck with me. Yeah. Um, so now kind of getting in, I guess, to the actual like structure of the guidelines that they've kind of laid out, they switched it up in terms of that they had, they set questions that they wanted to be able to answer prior to starting their um, essentially literature review. Um, so these guidelines are designed to focus on patients in the United States that haven't traveled, um, that don't have any foreign travel recently. Um, and especially not to regions with emerging respiratory pathogens. Um, they also focus on adults who do not have immunocompromising conditions. So more so just your everyday um, healthy or mostly healthy adult that doesn't have um, any immunocompromising factors. And so they made 16 questions that they wanted to have addressed in um, it's kind of the order that I was thinking we could talk through them in essentially. Sure, Just yeah. to kind of cover what they had. And I've broken them even kind of up into um, more like group sections. So this first one, they kind of talk about the acquisition of cultures and the diagnostic tests that they, they recommend using. And so the first question they looked at was, um, should gram stain and culture of lower respiratory secretions be obtained at the time of diagnosis? And so essentially they're just asking, should sputum cultures be uh, obtained? And the essentially the first uh, the recommendation from them is in severe cases, especially if the patient is intubated, you should get a sputum culture. Um, and then in all inpatients treated empirically for MRSA or uh, pseudomonas. And then anyone that had previous infection by those pathogens, especially respiratory infections, and if they had been hospitalized with IV antibiotics in the last 90 days. So by definition, um, severe cases aren't are going to be treated treated exclusively inpatient. So anyone that's being treated outpatient won't need to have these cultures obtained. Um, so that's just kind of the general takeaway there is that um, moderate cases and um, mild cases can, you can forego obtaining cultures and sputum yeah. cultures in this, that po- those populations. For sure. Yeah, that's good stuff. And then um, also blood cultures were kind of the next thing that they had looked at, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So before they said in severe cases, um, you know, they wanted you to definitely get uh, blood cultures. But um, now they're saying with the new guidelines that uh, they kind of have the same criteria as the sputum, right? Yeah. Yeah. So essentially, those severe cases that um, 
suspected MRSA or Pseudomonas past infection by those pathogens or uh, recent IV antibiotics in a hospitalized setting. Yeah. So at least that's kind of easy to keep straight in your head. There's not a difference between whether you should obtain sputum and blood cultures. Yeah, for sure. I'm all about making it easier. That's, that's good. My, yeah. my brain can only handle so much. Yeah. Especially with how much information comes at us every day. Yeah, exactly. So. All right. So then the next question that they looked at was, um, should Legionella or pneumococcal urinary antigen testing be performed at the time of diagnosis? And it's kind of similar. Um, so, in any adults with severe community-acquired pneumonia or with risk factors of having those specific pathogens, so if there's been an outbreak, um, various other things that they go into, but we'll kind of stay out of the weeds there. Um, but then also, if they have a positive, if uh, if they're positive and blood cultures have not been taken, um, they recommend that you obtain blood cultures at that point. So, yeah, um, and. One of the other things I was, I think is interesting. So that's one of the, obviously the tests that we can do, but it, just because you get a negative result doesn't necessarily rule out pneumococcal pneumonia. Um, if that yeah. um, pneumococcal urinary antigen comes back negative. Um, mm -hmm. I think they, uh, they say it has like a, um, specificity of, of, uh, more than 90%, but sensitivity of 50 to 80%. So, um, something that helps us come up with a diagnosis but, and helps potentially uh, uh, confirm our suspicions, but not necessarily ruling things out in every case. Yeah. Yeah. Especially if the patient isn't responding to the treatment that you decide to give them. So don't take these as, as law that if, if it's negative, that it, it definitely can't be that. So you don't need to try to cover for it. Mm -hmm. um, definitely use your clinical judgment. And if the antibiotic that you're using isn't working and you're not targeting those pathogens, um, based on your local antibiogram data, more so than even like the guideline recommendations, then you definitely want to broaden therapy and consider that these are definitely still possibilities. For sure. Um, Alan, the other thing um, talking about like, uh, you know, getting sputum cultures, things like that is we mentioned earlier, uh, viral um, infections can be the cause. And mm -hmm. so they mentioned for question four, um, respiratory samples or should respiratory samples be tested for influenza virus at the time of diagnosis? Um, mm -hmm. And so what's the thought process now with that? So previously, the, the influenza diagnostics, there are various forms. They all kind of sound like they have the same name if you're not like dealing with them on an everyday basis. But basically, they, the tests they used previously for those 2007 guidelines were highly ineffective. They weren't as um, sensitive or specific. But um, now with the, um, the nucleic acid amplification tests um, that we have, that's kind of like I think the gold standard now essentially at most institutions. Um, the they are much more sensitive, much more specific. But the, the recommendation is essentially still just obtain those only when there are uh, influenza viruses circulating in the, the community. So in like middle of summer, you don't really need to be giving everyone a viral PCR. Um, but kind of once you get into October, November, into the the stronger period of flu season as you start seeing those positive tests definitely start ordering them on people that have pneumonia just to rule it out 
Yeah. And we'll kind of get into where they distinguish in treatment um, for that a little bit later on in the questions. Cool. Yeah. All right. So where the, else are we going? The next thing is like kind of like other laboratory diagnostic tools that they discuss. Um, so there are two kinds of things here. One they actually addressed in a question, and one was in a table that they kind of just recommended that I still just wanted to touch on because it is the pretty prominent um, aspect of treating pneumonia. So question five is saying, should serum procalcitonin plus clinical judgment versus clinical judgment alone be used to withhold initiation of antibiotic treatment. In the previous guideline, this wasn't discussed. This procalcitonin is kind of a marker of um, kind of uh, an immune response. And um, that was, it's been within, I think, the last essentially decade that they've kind of started using this and started to build protocols for it. It's pretty commonly used in um, sepsis and COPD exacerbations to decide whether uh, antibiotic treatment should be initiated. At least some institutions are doing that, not all. So I shouldn't say that it's, if you're not doing this, that you should be. That's it, not what I'm saying. A lot of places have done their own lit literature evals and decided that it's what would be best for them. But uh, in the new guideline, they're not recommending uh, regular use of these just to initiate antibiotic mm -hmm. therapy. Um, they would rather recommend that you use um, that you just want to use that empiric antibiotic therapy in those with, you know, radiographically confirmed and like clinically suspected cases of CAP, regardless of their initial serum procalcitonin. The yeah. one caveat. Go ahead. No, no, no. I, well, I, I was just going to mention too, since um, you know they they brought up the procalcitonin, but also because um, you know we're, we're they're measuring. Uh, inflammatory it's a inflammatory biomarker if you will and mm -hmm. so um, another one that you'll see come up is um, c-reactive protein crp uh, however mm -hmm. from like in an acute um, situation it's it's kind of like a non-specific uh, acute phase reactant so it's very hard to like kind of use uh, crp to, to figure out exactly what's causing the inflammation um, whereas mm -hmm. procalcitonin it also can be activated by certain inflammatory cytokines and things but um, it's it's kind of ramped up whenever you have this um, release of uh, microbial endotoxins so it's it's probably if you are going to use an inflammatory biomarker that's probably a, a better option more accurate yeah and they said that for initiation of therapy it might not be mm -hmm. um, necessary especially because of the, the currently recommended duration of treatment. Um, but if the, you're, they, um, you do use the longer like empiric duration of treatment, say, uh, from like 10 to 14 days, just empirically at your hospital site or whatever, wherever you're practicing that, um, using procalcitonin may help decide when to discontinue antibiotic if the patient is also clinically improving. So you should, they say that you shouldn't use it to initiate, decide whether you're going to initiate antibiotic, but you can use it to help decide if it's clinically appropriate to discontinue therapy after um, a week or so, just depending. And I think one of the reasons why they didn't really recommend it, there was um, a meta-analysis in 2018 that was looking at patients who um, had undergone like antibiotic decisions um, in their treatment based on either procalcitonin, um, whether that being procalcitonin guided antibiotic decisions or um, not. And 
you know, they found that the 30-day all-cause mortality rates w- were significantly lower in the procalcitonin group, and um, the um, I just lost my place in my own notes. Um, and uh, the um, I guess antibiotic the duration of antibiotic exposure um, was also better. But um, as far as overall treatment failure. Um, there wasn't a, a big difference, um, and it was, didn't reach significance, and so it probably it wasn't going to be enough for them to say, yeah, everyone should get this because it's just another cost, and you know, yeah, gotta gotta watch yeah. that money. Mm-hmm. Sorry, go and ahead. So, and yeah, that's essentially all that I had to say about the, the procalcitonin. Unless you had more, Mm-mm. nope. Okay, so the next kind of diagnostic test that wasn't specifically addressed in a question, but they did touch on it was um, MRSA nasal swabs. This is another PCR test that you can do. Uh, The hospital that I've worked at as an intern um, uses this to essentially rule out um, MRSA as a a likely pathogen. So um, the idea here is that they have a high negative predictive value. So um, if it is negative, the likelihood that MRSA is not the causative pathogen is very high. So if a patient hits the door and they're being going to be treated empirically with, let's say, vancomycin is what we see at uh, the hospital I work at. Mm. Um, so vanc- vancomycin is essentially just there to cover the possibility of MRSA. Mm. If we do the nasal PCR swab before, um, it can come back as either negative or positive. But positive could mean that the patient is just colonized and it's not the causative pathogen or that it's there and it is the causative pathogen. So just because it's positive doesn't mean that MRSA is what's causing the infection. But um, when it's negative, it means that the patient isn't colonized and they're not. Um, it's not likely going to be the pathogen. Because MRSA, MRSA is such a healthy organism that it's going to grow and kind of... Um, live in the entire respiratory tract if it's there. Mm-hmm. So it's one of the rare times where we're actually pumped when it's negative. <laughs> and we, yeah. we're like, yeah. okay, good. Now we know we can at least stop the, the vanc or linazolid. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a good day in the hospital when we get a negative uh, MRSA PCR. To, there you go. Because it's continued to stop tracking that vancomycin. <laughs> For sure. Especially for the pharmacist who's having to do the, it's if it's an older system, they have to do kinetics by hand or whatever. Does anybody, yeah. does anybody still stuck yeah. with doing that still in the two thousand almost twenty? I'm sure there's uh, some there's some people out there that have to be. They got yeah. the old school calculators going. Yeah, I know that there's some of the pharmacists at my hospital like crush to do that. A lot of us just use like um, global RPH my, or modern a technology Bancomycin calculator. Yeah, yeah. bancomycincalculator dot com. Yeah. Not um, trying to do logs but, and all that kind of fun stuff <laughs> by hand. I don't yeah. trust myself at all. Yeah. So um, it's a pretty useful tool to be able to use that to, to rule it out. So For sure. Cool. Uh, where are we going now? So the next thing that to touch on is like essentially the site of care decisions. So this is kind of what we already kind of hinted at this. Mm-hmm. This is in the previous guideline. They stated that it was unclear whether the pneumonia severity index or the PSI versus the, the CURB 65 score was superior. There was no, it was very unclear. And for anyone that doesn't remember, CURB 65 actually just stands for like confusion, um, blood urea nitrogen, uh, respiratory rate, 
blood pressure, and then if the patient's age is 65 or more. Mm-hmm. And so those are the kind of risk factors that you go down. And if it's um, traditionally, if it was three or more, you treat them inpatient. Um, and um, two was kind of a, well, it's kind of up in the air. You've got to determine, like, is the patient competent enough? So you don't want to send a patient that's got um, a lot of confusion that lives alone uh, back home. Make sure that if, but if they have, if they're pretty competent, they understand, they can understand if they're worsening or if they have someone at home that can watch, that understands and can watch them, mm-hmm. will notice if they're worsening and the, their treatment is failing. Um, they might be okay to send home versus those patients that are um, pretty confused, um, pretty elderly, may not be able to um, get to the phone and call. So that one's kind of a clinical judgment where it's like, one, it's pretty safe to just send them home and treat them outpatient. Yeah. And then, but that was essentially how the Curve 65 worked. But they're actually not recommending that as much as the pro- as the um, prognostic model anymore. So they're recommending the pneumonia severity index, which is pretty um, complicated system, I guess, in terms of comparison to the, the five-point scale that Curve 65 is. Um, I think you can have up to uh, 370 or 390 points or something. Yeah, 395. You really hit the, bon- yeah, yeah. the bonus round with that one. Yeah. So Straight to the um, ICU. <laughs> yeah. So um, it's kind of broken up into the same, like, into five classes still, but the points, um, so anywhere zero to 50 is considered class one essentially correlates to a mortality rate of 0.1%. So that's why it's pretty safe to send those patients home. And then anywhere from 51 to 70 is uh, class two, which is 0.6% mortality. mortality. And then 71 to 90 is class three, which is 0.9% mortality. And then in class four, you jump to 9.3% mortality. So you can see why you really want to treat those patients kind of in in an inpatient setting, and then five is all the way up to 27%. Mm. And, but essentially, classes four and class five are treated, uh, are kind of just lumped together because they both warrant an inpatient stay, and then other factors in clinical judgment are determined whether like a medical unit versus an ICU stay is warranted. And the uh, the ICU, correct me if I'm wrong, the ICU stay typically is warranted if they're needing like pressors, um, and things mm-hmm. that actually keep their blood pressure stable and all that, right? That's kind of how the, one of the yeah. ways they can di- or figure out which floor they're going to be on. Yeah. So uh, maybe the, the pressors, if they're kind of like with a septic presentation, they need that um, pressor support, or if they uh, require mechanic, mechanical ventilation. Mechanical ventilation. Because that'll, that, that'll take kind of a lot more dedicated nursing time or one-on-one time checking in on the patient. Yeah. Um, so those are the kind of the two things that more so warrant an ICU stay good deal so um so, next up treatment right we're actually getting into yeah some, some so, treatment options yep and so there, there are eight questions that they asked here um we're not gonna discuss the previous recommendations just so that it's not completely confusing because there's a lot of different antibiotics you can use for each of these groups so trying to keep it as straightforward as possible for all the listeners so the first question is, in the outpatient setting, which antibiotics are recommended for empiric treatment of community-acquired pneumonia in adults? And so this is broken into um, two groups. So outpatients with no comorbidities and then um, outpatients with comorbidities. So 
for the patients without comorbidities, so no hypertension, diabetes, um, things like that, you can. They recommend using amoxicillin one gram three times a day, doxycycline 100 milligrams twice a day, and then there's a caveat on this next recommendation. So you can use either a Z-pack or clarithromycin 500 milligrams BID or the extended release one gram daily. But the caveat here is it was previously a strong recommendation to use this as monotherapy, but now it's conditional based on uh, your local uh, macrolide resistance rates. And if those are greater than 25%, uh, you want to avoid this, this treatment option because mm -hmm. It's just too much of a chance of treatment failure. Yeah, which happens more than we think. I mean, twenty-five percent sounds like oh, a lot, I think, but it's we're mm -hmm. seeing a lot of macrolide resistance in multiple bugs, not just some of our respiratory bugs, but even like H. pylori yeah. and stuff like that. I mean, there's just we're seeing a lot of macrolide yeah. resistance. Thanks to everyone yeah. at the urgent care getting Z packs just because they have sniffles for five seconds. Um, unfortunately, yeah. we created a bunch of bugs that now chomp up macrolides like it's nothing. Yes. Yeah, and specifically that's um, in your um, strep pneumoniae um, pathogen if those resistance rates are um, greater than 25% in that pathogen. So that one just says basically just defer to your antibiogram whether or not you can use those. Yeah. Um, so do you want to take the comorbidities? And you, you mentioned uh, talking about um, the TID treatment with amoxicillin. Was that the one? Because we, when we talked about this briefly yesterday, was that the one you said that uh, you ended no, up looking into? Or was it the Augmentin? It's the Augmentin one. Okay. So I realized that my comments aren't on this document I've been looking at. So let me get the other one opened up here. I like it. You've just been going off improv. That's the way to do it. Show the people what you know, man. I like it. <laughs> no practice on game day. Um, so the, uh, if a patient is being treated as you know an outpatient adult and they have comorbidities, the same things that you mentioned earlier, um, that's when mm -hmm. we're going to use a little bit more uh, broad spectrum. So in that case, instead of amoxicillin, we're actually going to add the beta-lactamase inhibitor and do um, augmentin, so um, amoxicillin with clavulonic acid as well. And the dosing is kind of weird, and, I, and we'll get you to shed some light on this in a minute, but um, it's either the 500 over 125 three times a day, um, or the ER875 uh, over 125 twice a day, or the ER2000 over 125 BID. So why all the variations? You, you said that you found something possibly to explain it? Yeah. So, essentially, with I want to get my notes, Mike. Yeah, no worries. While you're looking for that, I'll, I'll finish out my thoughts yeah. since I jumped around too much. Yeah. Um, yeah. So if you're not going to use the um, beta-lactam with the beta-lactamase inhibitor, then you can also use um, one of like the second-generation uh, cephalosporins, so like cefiroxime, 500 milligrams twice a day. Um, and then you would want to use that in combination with a macrolide um, because that way you're double-covering for some of the gram-negatives and things like that. Um, so you could use like with the azithromycin, 500 milligrams on that first day and then followed up by 250 milligrams after that. Um, the other option again is, is still doxycycline, um, 100 milligrams twice a day, um, as well. And then if you wanted to use just plain, um, monotherapy by itself, that's when we're going to use one of our respiratory fluoroquinolones. So levofloxacin or moxifloxacin. So we're using the beta-lactam, so either a cephalosporin or um, the amoxicillin, clavulonic acid, um, with a macrolide. 
Um, so that's a combo or you have to use, if you're going to use monotherapy, fluoroquinolone. Yes. Yeah. And so I finally got my notes pulled up here. And so they didn't really specifically address this in the guidelines, but there's, I was kind of curious why they recommended either that 875 augmentin um, twice a day or this two gram, uh, then with the same dose of beta-lactamase inhibitor for both of those twice a day. And one of the studies that they cited actually looked at areas with high rates of penicillin-resistant strep pneumo. Mm -hmm. And the specifically, the study was done in Spain in 2006 when um, uh, nationwide rates essentially were anywhere ranging from 20 to 35%, which 35% is a pretty, pretty high um, resistance rate if you think about it. Um, and so I'm not sure what it is in France now, but and during the time of this study, they showed that this dose was significantly more effective. Um, so uh, looking at your local antibiogram data, again, could help you distinguish whether or not it warrants using that 875 or whether you can be safe using that 875 or whether the, the local antibiogram data might warrant using that 2-gram two, two uh, dose. Yeah. So it, what's great is you get rid of your pneumonia and you have just raging diarrhea for like a week. So that's that's solid. Um, yeah. Two grams of freaking amoxicillin with clavulin acid that would be rough on the old GI system. Yeah. But um, I'll yeah, tell you what. Definitely just, take that dose of food. Yeah. Exactly. Um, and I will say just as kind of like a side note, I'm very proud of you. Um, and I know we're just just now like starting to hang out, but um, I'm very yeah. proud of you for seeing that, not explaining the guidelines and actually taking the initiative to look up the why. Um, that is something mm -hmm. that I feel like 99% of people just kind of like, oh, there it is. And then that's that. Um, and so one of, if any of my students that are ever on rotation or my PA students or anything, you know, they'll, they, if you ask them, what's my favorite word ever, it's the question why, because I want to know, did you memorize this or do you truly understand like mm -hmm. when to pick one of those? So that's just a side note. Um, Props to you for doing yeah. that. I'm proud of you. Well, thank you. All right. Where are we going from here? So the next treatment group that, that you're looking at is essentially, um, this is the next question, is in inpatient, in the inpatient setting, what regimens are recommended for empiric treatment in adults without risk factors for MRSA or pseudomonas aeruginosa? And so this one's also kind of broken um, broken up into essentially non-severe and then severe. Um, so you can kind of think about these in groups. So in, in the inpatient setting, you're basically just going to be doing um, combination therapy or monotherapy again, with monotherapy being those respiratory fluoroquinolones of levofloxacin 750 milligrams daily or moxifloxacin 400. Just a brief note on kind of what we mean by respiratory fluoroquinolone. So that essentially comes down to um, the fact that um, there's a higher resistance rate for um, ciprofloxacin and even levofloxacin 500 in uh, the step pneumonia species. And uh, using the 750 milligram per day dose, um, it gets you above the required like drug concentrations to ensure that you're going to have a treatment failure and also to help prevent the development of new resistance. 
So, and and I'm glad you mentioned that because I think where some of the confusion happens is, especially if we're like if we're treating like nosocomial pneumonia, we're double covering for pseudomonas like empirically, they'll they'll do like the cefepime and then throw on like um, you know either cipro or levaquin depending on what kind of hospital setting is. So when we say a flora, you know, um, uh, respiratory fluoroquinolones. A lot of times students will automatically think, okay, Cipro and Levo, cool, because that's what we're using in the hospital. It's, it's because of the strep pneumo coverage in, in CAP that we're um, only using the Levo and the Moxie. So that's good. I'm glad you brought that up because Cipro is not considered a respiratory fluoroquinolone. So that was actually a test question on one of my, uh, from my PA students. So <laughs> to make sure they're not yeah. picking Cipro, they will not get better, yeah. most likely. No, very unlikely. Um, and so then that's the monotherapy side. Um, and I think you actually might have missed one that you can use gemifloxacin in the outpatient setting. Yes, 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 yes. I well, did. I always, but, I always uh, leave that I mean, one out because of the price. <laughs> yeah. But just one thing, the interesting note I didn't realize, but there isn't an IV formulation of gemifloxacin. Mm. So they actually don't recommend it in this set setting because we're looking at IV therapies for these patients. Oh, well, so I just cool. kind of wanted to mention it because of that reason that in the guidelines, it, it, doesn't say it when you get down to this section. Yeah, that, and that makes sense. Got there and kind of questioned why I just wanted to be. Uh, I even kind of questioned that, and then my professor was like, "Well, it's not oral." I was like, "Oh yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, that would that makes sense why they didn't recommend it here." Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, I've only seen that drug one time, like in actual, like real life, and like yeah, I, I've, I've heard about it, I've read about it, but I've, I've only seen it actually on the shelf one time in a pharmacy. Yeah, I don't think that I've seen it anywhere that I've. Been been on on rotations even so yeah. and i've been through five different places at this point so yeah it's probably not the very common because the transition you can't transition from iv to that uh, one the oral going home yeah yeah i mean you could switch agents but that might just be part of the reason why yeah so looking at the combination therapy um, for non-severe you're going to use essentially iv beta lactams so they recommend um Augmentin's um, kind of IV counterpart, which is ampicillin sulbactam, um, standard dosing of 1.5 to 3 gram and 3 grams of the uh, sulbactam every six hours, or you can use uh, cefotaxime, one to two grams every eight hours. But as a note here, cefotaxime is now off market in the U.S. Perfect. Um, the manufacturer, the manufacturer decided to stop making it, but I think that was announced like a couple like a week or two before these guidelines came out so you know there's I'm guessing like, that, that wasn't on their radar you know there's like a type a person that wrote was involved with like uh, you know was one of the authors and he's just like losing his mind when he saw that he's like we have something in the guidelines that it's not even on the market anymore i feel like yeah. that had to have happened at least once yeah yeah Anyways, so sorry <laughs> go ahead no that's fine and so then the next agent that they recommend is triaxone one to two grams daily um and that's pretty standard that's what i see pretty much constantly for, for this kind of um, risk group is that ceftriaxone because you get to spare the pseudomonas coverage with that agent um, and you don't have to renally dose it. Mm -hmm. So it's like everyone's favorite third generation cephalosporin. Yeah. And then this, this next recommendation that they made was kind of mildly infuriating. just Sponsored by the drug company. <laughs> yeah, something. I don't know. So the reason I'll say what it is and then I'll explain kind of my frustration with it is that it's ceftaroline or Tefloro because it's still a brand name drug right now and mm -hmm. it's 600 milligrams every 12 hours. And 
this just is mildly infuriating because it's recommended in this, in this section that's adults without risk factors for MRSA or pseudomonas. Well, Tefloa's kind of claim to fame is that it is uh, able to cover MRSA. Right. And why would we want to risk using it, overusing it, and resistance developing when it's kind of one of those niche drugs? Right. But taking I, one, I taking one with, of uh, the newer agents that we have for MRSA, and we're like, oh, just throw it in there with something we have plenty of other options for. Yeah. So, and I kind of talked to my professor as well, and we kind of maybe came down to the fact that since it does have that FDA um, indication for community-acquired bacterial pneumonia, um, but that's why they included it on this list. But I'm going to assume that most people, most ID physicians, most pharmacists are going to say, let's spare this anyway and just use it and just use that in this like the patients with MRSA risk factors. I would imagine, um, too, even, and I'm not on the inpatient side at all, but I would imagine yeah. any of the uh, powers that be that make financial decisions at the hospital are also going to say, we are not using yeah. that for pneumonia. Yeah. I would imagine anyone, it would flip out. Anyone on the, yeah. So that's going to be like a reserved agent, I think, for those patients that yeah. really need it. It's not going to be used empirically in almost any cases. Yeah. Unless we get to a very dark place in terms of MRSA resistance. Right. Like MRSA rates. Not so wood. Yeah. We'll, we'll try to be good stewards. So that's, you have to pick one of those beta-lactam agents and then using a macrolide, um, either azithromycin 500 milligrams daily. And so you're not using ZPAC dosing here. You're um, using the 500 daily or clorithromycin twice daily. And to me, that's kind of a no-brainer why use something twice daily when you can use something once, I guess, unless the patient has uh, an allergy. Which case, I would also want to stay away from clorithromycin. Yeah, clorithromycin. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's got so many mm -hmm. drug drug interactions you got to worry about, and yeah, it gets to go with azithro. I like that plan better. Yeah, yeah. And so then the second half of this question is the severe. It's actually recommendation nine point two technically, and so um, they basically just refer back to these like predefined groups of antibiotics that they said earlier. So uh, beta lactam plus one of the macrolides defined above is one route that you can do, or you should use a beta-lactam and a respiratory fluoroquinolone. So monotherapy in severe patients uh, is not an option. You don't want to risk um, resistance uh, rearing its ugly head and uh, causing a bad patient outcome just because you wanted to try to spare an agent. Mm -hmm. Good stuff. Oh, hey, there's our aspiration pneumonia. There it is. I spoke way too soon earlier. <laughs> I that totally ruined yeah. the surprise. What the heck? Yeah. Yeah. So this was something that I was kind of curious to what they were going to be saying about it because I heard some different things from various practitioners. And so essentially the question is, should patients with suspected aspiration pneumonia receive additional anaerobic coverage beyond the standard empiric treatment? And they suggest not routinely adding anaerobic coverage for suspected aspiration pneumonia unless you've got some significant complications, such as a lung abscess or uh, an empyema based on like your radiographic findings, because those are going to be the um, cases where there might be an anaerobic pathogen um, possible. Mm. And so um, part of it is what the, they're saying is that if patients aspirate gastric contents, they're considered to have what's called aspiration pneumonitis, which is essentially the, the acid of the stomach 
contents um, kind of damages the lungs and causes what would look pretty similarly on radiograph, at least for the first, I think it says 24 to 48 hours. Mm -hmm. um, you can have a pretty similar presentation to a, a bacterial or an infection, infection-based pneumonia. But those patients that have those um, aspiration pneumonitis symptoms would really only require supportive therapy, not antibiotics. Cool. And then, yeah, uh, they, they, the, sorry, go ahead. They did cite a couple like studies that they were looking at, which I thought was interesting that um, older studies had shown maybe some like higher rates of anaerobes um, in aspiration pneumonia patients. But more recent studies have shown that they're fairly uncommon in patients that are hospitalized with suspected aspiration. And so with the increasing prevalence of antibiotic-resistant pathogens and complications from overuse, the, they're trying to recommend this a treatment, treatment approach that avoids any unnecessary antibiotics. So that was the rationale that they kind of gave for this area. Yeah, that makes sense. Mm -hmm. I like your note here on question 11. <laughs> and uh, so the question is, uh, in the inpatient setting, should adults with CAP and risk factors for MRSA or pseudomonas be treated with extended spectrum antibiotic therapy instead of standard CAP regimens? Um, and then the first bullet point, you have startups. It says, um, committee ignores question, rants about <laughs> HCAP. <laughs> it doesn't exist. Please don't use it. <laughs> That's pretty funny. Yeah. I, I was reading through and I, I read the question. And I was like, that did not respond to the question at all so they just kind of like just went off on a tangent recommended it in the 20 i think it was the 2016 hat bat guidelines to not use the indication h cap but the previous pneumonia guidelines still set it mm -hmm. and so uh, a lot of um they were just putting that one to rest use that as like an indication yeah, yeah. <laughs> so they're like right now this is eliminating it from both sources so <laughs> that's funny and this is yeah. uh so okay so in this case um if if you are worried about um MRSA uh in in pseudomonas they give you um, a lot of different options for empiric treatment and we I think you touched on this earlier right if because uh, you are worried about MRSA potentially um because mm -hmm. you're the pseudomonas and MRSA are the two that we need to really cover empirically and so uh, in most places they're going to use either uh, Vanco um or linazolid. Um, some, I mean, there's other options like, you know, as you were saying, Soteroline, but uh, most likely it's going to be one of those two agents. Um, and then as far as treating the pseudomonas, um, Piptazo is an option. Uh, Cefepime um, is the one. I know like at the um, MUSC is the local teaching hospital here. That's the, I think they still use that um, empirically. Mm -hmm. um, Ceftazidime um, is another option for cephalosporin. And then we always have uh, our like S -tree and am If the person has like a true like beta lactam allergy, not like a, mm -hmm. a, a slight rash, but a, a true like anaphylactic reaction, yeah. we can always use S -tree and am um, And then the two uh, carbapenems that they do recommend is the miropenem and imipenem. Um, and they, they took doripenem off, didn't they, in this one? Yeah, so I'm kind of curious why. I mean, erdipenem won't cover pseudomonas, yeah. so that makes sense that they left that off. But it was kind of interesting that they didn't include doripenem, and it may be I'm not I haven't looked for sure that uh, doripenem never got uh, an official like FDA indication for treatment of community acquired pneumonia. They may never have just sought it. The, the manufacturer may not have. They didn't feel they needed to maybe do that. 
um, just because people will a lot of times the drugs will get approved and then uh, ID physicians and practitioners will just use them How as they see like fit. And <laughs> yeah. So um, there are very few, uh, I guess, agents that you're kind of really worried about, um, whether it's like concentrations getting to the site of the infection. Um, but I don't believe that that was the issue with Doripenem. I think it might just not have gotten, they might have never sought approval for it. They, uh, I saw it actually, I'm just looking for it real quick to see if I can find it. They, um, uh, uh Doripenem, because they said that that was one of the ones they recommended for ventilator-acquired pneumonia. Um, and it, it, so you're right, it's actually not FDA approved for any of the pneumonias. And, but we used to see it like kind of, um, being recommended for ventilator-acquired pneumonia, but now they've even removed that. So they're saying just if you're covering okay. for pseudomonas to use the, um, imipenem and, um, Meripenem. And, uh, yeah, like you said, it also do Artipenem doesn't even have pseudomonas coverage. So that's always like a board question. I feel like it's like, it's yeah. like, that's like the fun fact yeah. trivia for nerds. Don't use Artipenem. <laughs> um, yeah, something that I got asked that of a lot of different sites of like that people trying to paint me on that. I'm like, yeah, no, it's Artipenem doesn't cover pseudomonas. That's why. <laughs> yeah. But like, I think it was like three preceptors on my ID rotation, like tried to, tried to get me on that. And I was like, no, I know that. It's okay. I get that one on lock. <laughs> yeah. Um, so there's also, uh, one thing and, and I actually, um, I was looking through some of my own notes, but, um, you, you've seen, uh, Delafloxacin, the fluoroquinolone that got yes. approved. It's for MRSA. Um, I didn't yeah. realize that, um, because it has activity against MRSA and pseudomonas, um, it gained, uh, approval in October this year for treatment in bacterial cap. Um, as well, I seriously doubt anybody's mm-hmm. gonna implement that. I didn't realize that. I, I didn't see that indication that it was get, given. So that's interesting. Yeah, that was actually one I was gonna bring up a little uh, bit later. My bad, man. I stole your thunder. No, that's again. no. I mean, it's, I keep it's, doing it's, that. Honestly, no, it can be. It can be brought up any time. Honestly, this is my this is my like attention issues that I have. I'm like five steps. I'm like, oh, what's what's left in this outline? I gotta get better at that. <laughs> Sorry, no, that's fine. Go, go for it. What I mean, doing? I didn't. It wasn't in the. It wasn't in my the notes that I had made anywhere. I was just um, it was just something I was going to mention at some point when I found a place to put it in. Um, because there's that, and then there's this new biotic that's just very weird. It's lefamulin, mm-hmm. which is actually um, a pleural mutilin, which is the first um, antibiotic in that that class that is being able, that's been approved for systemic use. Um, the previous pleural mutilin was like ritapamulin, I think. Mm-hmm. I, I, kind of unsure saying it out loud now that that's the actual name of it, but it's, it was a topical, uh, like cream antibiotic. Um, and I guess they figured out a way to make it uh, be safe for systemic use. And it's, it's been approved for a community acquired bacterial pneumonia. Um, and it can be, it has an IV and a PO formulation. So they've compared it to like moxifloxacin and mm-hmm. doxycycline for like as the efficacy um, I don't think that it has significant effect against MRSA or pseudomonas, but don't quote me on that. I haven't looked too much um, into it because I think no, that I data think is still right. pretty new. Yeah, I think it covers um, a lot of the, uh, it does cover the atypicals, um, yeah. which is good. And it covers like our, our normal, um, I, I think it's, it's, it covers staph aureus, but it's methicillin susceptible. Yeah. Not MRSA. Yes. Yeah. You're right. Yeah. Um, and so it, because it works Kind of this in the one of the along the same lines of 
the, the macrolide and the tetracyclines that it works intracellularly of the bacteria and targets the ribosomal subunits. Um, that 50s and 30s class. and all that fun stuff. Yeah, yeah. I think it, 50s is I think what it targets, but I'm not fully sure. Um, but yeah, so it essentially works along the same lines. So that's why it has that coverage of the atypical pathogens that don't have a, a cell wall. Yeah. Um, so that's why it's a, a really good candidate for community-acquired pneumonia. Cost-wise, it's probably going to be a while before anyone starts utilizing it in any real real sense. Yeah. Um, and so I guess the it's Lefamulin or Zenletta is the brand name that it's being marketed under at this point. So, yeah, just a fun note if you hadn't. I thought it was just really neat because it's the fir- it's a, a new first class. First it's gone, yeah, for sure. Yeah. So, um, there's hope. Yeah. There's hope that we might be able to find some more things. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. Resistance mechanisms are things, something I find really, really interesting and really cool. So yeah, for sure. Hopefully something I, something I think I'd like to like specialize more in once I get to my PGY2. Do you think you ever end up yeah. doing like any kind of like bench work research, like biochem research, like in drug discovery or anything? So actually I've got, I've been working like kind of with some research professors at Ohio Northern doing computational work of like looking at natural products. Mm-hmm. Um, we haven't tried to design anything. We've been looking at the like biochemical pathways that uh, cinnamon works in. Hmm. Um, and I've, I've liked that. I like the computational side of things. I, I fumble in lab a lot and um, it's just not a place that I feel overly comfortable, mm-hmm. I guess, like at this current point. Um, so it is kind of like I probably could learn if I got more exposure to it. I just never spent a ton of time in the, like doing wet lab research mm-hmm. um, on a consistent basis. Um, yeah, but I think I, I think I, that like good. I think that I would like to be able to do something like like investigational drug studies, like mm-hmm. doing clinical trials on that side of things, which is the complete opposite of what I thought when I went into pharmacy school. Yeah, I thought I wanted to do the like. Uh, like um, pre-clinical trial mm-hmm. portions of the drug design and drug, drug study. discovery and the initial yeah. discovery. Yeah. But um, I guess my experiences at least showed me that I, I think I'd like to move more towards that like patient clinical trial side of things. Yeah. So, and I mean, you can always do, I've seen people, I actually, one of my students that I had um, on rotation with me this year, she's doing the PharmD PhD program. And so she's going to be able to kind of live in both worlds. So do some bench work mm-hmm. and actually see patients. So that would be kind of cool. I, I don't think I could ever do research like biochem research all day. I think it would drive me nuts yeah. after like a month, but like a day or two yeah. a week, that'd be pretty cool. I could, I could be down with that, <laughs> but um, yeah, yeah that's, that's pretty cool to mix it up like that. Yeah. But, spent like three years on that research and I still only understand like the very like tight like area around like the protein specifics that we were looking at and the proteins like one away from it so like it's just insane the amount of like data that's out there and like how much we don't understand yet right yeah it's crazy 
So it's good. Though. That's what I like about medicine so much is you can play the game forever. Yeah. You never even come close yeah. to learning it all. So that's good. Cause like yeah. I'm real, like, you know, kind of, I need a mountain to climb kind of thing. And so, you know, mm-hmm. if there's any time you're like, you know, you can only get so high in a company, you can only get whatever, but medicine, I'm like, well, I could do this for the next 400 years. If somehow I get a miracle drug yeah. to keep me alive and I still wouldn't even scratch the yeah. surface. So this is, yeah. this is why one of the reasons I love medicine so much, but yeah. Cool. So let's. That's one of the reasons that I like. Yeah, go no, ahead. Sorry. No, no, no. no. That's go one ahead. of the reasons that I like ID is that like it's different. I mean, like generally it's the same, but like the based on your like local resistance rates and everything, it's it's different everywhere you go. It's not, and it's also just like you're thinking about treating something that's outside the body. It's causing a manifestation in a certain like portion of the body. So yeah. Especially like vi- like looking at even like HIV virus, like how it actually like just yeah. takes over, hijacks your own stinking side. That to me is, I mean, a terrible thing, but it's just it's really really fascinating yeah. that something so yeah. small can just wreak havoc on you without even you know taking but a day. Yeah. Or two. It's just crazy, um, but yeah. yeah. So cool. Let's um let's go through this last little bit of adjunct therapy. Finish it off, and because uh, then I'm gonna get in trouble. I'm gonna get in the comments that uh, I I ramble on too much. I, 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 that's what I'm I'm being told is I get off topic too much. I'm like, well, sorry. I don't, oh, yeah. What you see is what you get. No, it's me. I'm bad. Yeah. I'm super bad about that. I just go off on these random tangents, and people are like, what the heck, man? <laughs> yeah. So cool. Right. Um, adjunct to therapy. What you got? So there's a couple different things here. This is referring to questions 12 through 14. So the first one is asking whether um, in the inpatient setting you should um, use uh, corticosteroids. And they basically, there's, they go through and say it's not recommended in all these different people. And then they say, so generally it's just not recommended, but it you can consider it if the patient has refractory septic shock. Yeah, um, That's kind of the one place where they think it might be uh, of use and that actually I was tasked to do like a clinical controversies in community acquired pneumonia on my ID rotation in June so quite a few months before this came out and that was one of the questions that she wanted me to look into my preceptor and I was like that was essentially what I found I said that like the best benefit is in like those critically ill maybe ICU patients reserving it to there but I think that this makes even more sense in just like using it in the refractory septic shock yeah did they did they give a like any of opinion on um, which like did they did they say to use hydrocortisone over one of the other glucocorticoids? Did they go to that depth? They just say if the person has shock, you can use steroids. Yeah, I don't think that they did. I'm not one hundred percent, but I, <laughs> I know typically like in shock, in that case because like for instance like hydrocortisone has glucocorticoid and mineral corticoid mm-hmm. properties, they tend to do that, or they'll use a glucocorticoid along with like um, fluidocortisone or something, one of the other, you know, mineral corticoids. Yeah. Um, I just didn't know if they actually went that deep with it, but anyways, sorry, just a random thought. No, that's okay. Yeah, I don't know. If, I don't think that they did. Um, but yeah, so I guess the next thing is going to be um, in adults with cap who test positive for influenza should they the treatment include antiviral therapy. So this is a, a pretty significant change from the previous guidelines. So in the old guidelines, they said that you should use anti-influenza treatment like ulcitamivir and um, those um, the other agents in that class to up to 48 hours after symptom onset for uncomplicated disease. Um, however, they gave the caveat that there could be it could be used to reduce viral shedding if the patient is staying in the hospital to help prevent um, the spread of the influenza virus to other patients in the hospital. 
But now they're saying that um, they're recommending that anti-influenza treatment be used in all adults who test positive for positive for influenza, independent of the duration of illness before diagnosis. Okay. And uh, and they basically say the same thing for patients in the outpatient setting as well, um, because what they essentially justified in the discussion, the rationale was that while some of the, the strongest effects are seen within that like two days period um, from exposure, um, the uh, there's a lot of benefits that um, may not shorten therapy, but it still can like decrease the severity of illness um, up to four or five days after the symptoms uh, start. Yeah. And then and now they're letting Tamiflu apparently go over the counter, so. That's now people are just yeah. taking it for the heck of it anyway. So, yeah, I worry about that a little bit. Yeah. Um, I'm kind of curious. And then we've got see how that plays out. Yeah, that's from a, a stewardship perspective. That just makes me very like very upset. I don't know. I don't know. Just the what, thought of having like super resistant, like a super influenza. Man, that's what we need right now. Honestly, we just need to shake things up and just introduce like yeah. the the worst flu we've ever seen. You know, keep us on our toes. Yeah. Yeah. Yep, that's definitely what all ID practitioners want at this point. Yeah, for sure, definitely. Um, just when we get like Zofluza that has um, kind of debatably better clinical outcomes yeah. than some of the other anti-influenza antivirals, but I'm interested to see where that's going to kind of fall in therapy as it gets used more. Yeah, Tamiflu is like, oh, you're going to be, be a competitor? Watch this. <laughs> Over the counter. Oh, <laughs> uh, shoot. Yeah. Didn't see it coming. Trump card there. Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah. yeah, I was I was shocked when I saw. It. I thought it was a joke. I was like, "Wow, okay, well, cool." Tamiflu for everyone. April Fool's. Oh wait, it's not yeah. April. Yeah. Crap. <laughs> <laughs> They're serious. Oops. So, um, what so, else? Well, let's let's uh, we'll wrap it up. Um, what's what's the last little bit where you need to answer? So the next thing is that should patients that have uh, diagnosed uh, viral influenza should they also get antibacterial therapy? And in the old guidance, I could not find a recommendation for the life of me searching all the various different things and trying to like scan through. Um, but in the new guidelines, they are recommending that um, a standard antibacterial treatment be initially prescribed if there's clinical and radiographic evidence of CAP and, the, and, and those who test positive for influenza because of the risk of uh, bacterial superinfection, superimposed bacterial infection on top of the viral being uh, so negative in terms of patient outcomes and the mortality that's seen there. Cool. And then, then we kind of move on to like the uh, duration of treatment and discontinuation, which is 15 and 16. In the outpatient and inpatient setting, patients with CAP who are improving, what is the appropriate duration? This is essentially unchanged from the past guidelines. They recommended um, that they be continued until a patient achieves stability for no less than, um, like for was it stability for 48 hours, but no less than five days total. So essentially, um, five days is what's going to be used. Um, and then you can essentially just assess based on your, how your institution or practice site defines clinically stable. Um, and so that's essentially status quo, I guess, is kind of like what they stuck with there. Yeah. Um, and then the last question that they look at is in adults with CAP who are improving, should follow-up chest imaging be obtained? And 
they're saying that essentially no, in any patients whose symptoms have resolved within that um, five to seven day period, they don't think that you really need to routinely follow like, follow up with that chest imaging because there might actually be um, radiographic changes for up to a month or more after um, the patient is infected just because of the damage that's kind of done during the course of the infection. So it's going to be a little while before they would even look maybe radiographically clear in most cases. Yeah. So yeah. Good stuff, man. I like this. This is a nice little review sheet too. Maybe we can uh, talk you into letting us uh, turn into a PDF file and share it for some other students around the country. Yeah. I'll probably clean it up a little bit more. Cool. But yeah, yeah. I think it'd be fine. Yeah. Cool. That'd be awesome. And actually, there's a website that I found that has a lot of cool graphics. It's at the top here. Um, and it has, there's, it looks like a, a hospitalist at NYU, I think is where it is. Um, I think at Carly M D, uh, is her Instagram handle. And she has these, all these cool graphics, like kind of like breaking down all the various questions. And there's a nice short, like, um, brief Review. reading. And so she has like the like inpatient pneumonia, like how obtaining cultures and like then deciding treatment. So yeah, it might be something if you're a visual learner, that might be something good to check out those graphics there. Yeah, for um, sure. So yeah. good stuff, man. I appreciate you doing this. Um, I know you're you know busy yeah. with everything going on, so it's good to have you on the show and I appreciate you, um, yeah, you know, following in all that stuff and taking the time to, to do all this. So that's definitely yeah. appreciate it. I, I definitely enjoyed it. It's, it was a fun time. Cool. Yeah, we'll, yeah. Do, we'll, we'll have to do it again. Once we get into uh, some more subjects that you find fascinating, you know, let us know. We'll come have you back on. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I didn't mention I am uh, a type 1 diabetic. Are you? Okay. So, yeah. So, um, that actually was another factor that kind of pushed me towards pharmacy is being in the, the medical field in some way. Yeah. As opposed to some of the non-medical options that were on that, like, aptitude test that I took. Yeah, so, yeah. So, um, but, like, I think... Something that could be interesting would possibly be like the looking at like glucose sensors and mm -hmm. using those in um, sensory therapy and whatnot. There's a lot of new data coming out with those closed loop systems. Yeah, for That's sure. Kind of we can definitely a hot do that. Topic be cool. for sure. Very, yeah, yeah, absolutely. We'll definitely set something up for the not too distant future. Yeah. Yeah. Good stuff, man. Awesome. Um, well, thank you for being here. And then thank you all of you all for listening. Um, I really appreciate you supporting the podcast. Um, if you have any questions, uh, mine and Cole's email will be uh, in the show notes as well as, you know, our Instagram handles and all that. Um, so if you need anything, definitely reach out. Um, also, uh, make sure you check out our new text messaging platform. Um, so send a text, just say, hey, whatever you want to put um, to area code 415 You'll get an automated response back um, asking you to fill out a quick form that just talks about your specialty and your name. That saves you to our phone book. And then when we send out um, exclusive data on that platform um, or information or whatever it may be, um, study guides, things like that, uh, you'll it'll actually go to you specifically. So um, um, if you don't want to do that, then hit us up on email, old school, and that's totally fine too. Um, but thank you guys so much for listening, and we will see you next time. Thanks.